This is The Lack with Helen Rollins, Benjamin Studebaker, and Nina Power. Today we're doing Barton Fink and the Cohen Brothers, and I'm starting us off. Barton Fink is the first Cohen Brothers film we have done on The Lack. It came out in 1991, the year before I was born. The title character, played by John Turturro, is a writer. He's writing for film studios in the late 30s. Like many professional writers, and I speak from personal experience here, Fink claims to sympathize with the working class. But in point of fact, he is a pretentious sellout. He disdains the works of art that the workers actually enjoy, and he uses his superficial commitment to workers' movements to rationalize his own relationship with capital. Fink struggles to write anything, and when he finally does write, the studio doesn't like what he produces. While he frets, he interacts with a few key people. There's an insurance salesman living next door, played by John Goodman. He seems affable. Then there's another writer, clearly modeled after William Faulkner. The faux Faulkner is successful, but he's also a drunk who makes use of a female ghostwriter. Fink pursues a sexual relationship with the ghostwriter, and eventually he discovers that the Goodman character is not as affable as he seems. I often feel that the Coen Brothers films can be taken two ways. As individual works, they seem to powerfully critique particular value sets. This film can be read as a powerful critique of the professional class. Fink persuades himself that he is making transformational art precisely because he is an utter sycophant for capital. He is desperate for the approval of his employers. When he gets it, it is because he is an artist. When he doesn't get it, it is because they are vulgar. If they are not fit to criticize him, why does he seek their praise? He needs their praise to get their money, of course. And while he's engaged in this silly game, the Goodman character is literally killing people. For Roger Ebert, the Goodman character symbolizes the Nazi movement, while Fink, the symbol of the professional class, was caught up in pseudo-political careerism, the workers were busy becoming Nazis. That might sound like a plausible reading of this individual film, but Ebert wrote his review in 1991, shortly after this film was released. Since then, the Coens have released more than a dozen films. I haven't seen all of them, but I have seen a lot of them. I've seen Raising Arizona, Fargo, The Big Lebowski, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, No Country for Old Men, Burn After Reading, A Serious Man, True Grit, Hail Caesar, and The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. The Coens marvel at people who believe in things, and by things I mean anything really. Their films convey two contradictory things. On the one hand, they wish they could believe in something, but they can't. On the other hand, they can't believe in something because beliefs are stupid. The Coen brothers are soft nihilists, similar to Matt Stone and Trey Parker, the creators of South Park. I say they are soft nihilists because they are so nihilistic that they cannot bring themselves to believe in nihilism. To put it dialectically, the hardest kind of nihilist is the soft nihilist. In The Big Lebowski, it is the nihilists themselves who get mocked. The John Goodman character in that film, himself a convert to Judaism, says these words, Say what you want about the tenets of National Socialism, dude. At least it's an ethos. In Fargo and in Barton Fink, two different forms of greed are mocked. Fargo mocks the greed of the gangster willing to risk death or imprisonment for coin. Fink mocks the greed of the professional who sells himself to capital, papering over the transaction with a kind of slave morality in which he is the highest kind of artist and they are just vulgarians. But in Hail Caesar, it is the communists and Herbert Marcuse who are mocked. They are treated as suckers for the Soviet empire. And in A Serious Man, it is religion itself that is not taken seriously. Then there is No Country for Old Men, a film everyone takes very seriously. But in my estimation, it is little more than The Dark Knight in a Cheap Suit. The two films came out roughly a year apart in the late noughties. Javier Bardem's character is, like the Joker, a man who kills capriciously without cause. In all the Coen Brothers films, the characters who kill for reasons are ridiculous. It is this character who, in his purposelessness, they take most seriously. The critics largely follow them, exalting this film as their best since Fargo. I like many Coen Brothers films individually, just as I like many South Park episodes individually. Often they're critiques of different value systems at home. But then there is the question of what to do, of how to respond to a world in which so many people live foolishly in the service of various forms of rubbish. I am a great admirer of Adorno, the culture critic who argued that the whole of the culture industry was overrun by capital, incapable of producing anything of substantive value. In his view, 
capitalist instrumentality had become totalitarian, largely precluding even the possibility of cognizing alternative modes of thinking. In the 80s, Jürgen Habermas, Adorno's student, criticized Adorno for offering no positive project. While Adorno implored us to think differently, he did not give us something to do. Habermas hoped to give us something to do, but his efforts went astray and were largely resubmerged back into liberalism. His communicative rationality became a progress narrative for liberal theorists, and his Eurocommunism gave way to the European Union that guts the welfare state and oppresses the Greeks. Yet for all the ways Habermas proved wrong, he was still right in the 80s. Adorno did not give us enough to live for, and it was because Adorno did not give us enough that we regressed back into the theories of Habermas. Too many people psychologically needed Habermas to reassure them that there was in fact a point to carrying on. It is the psychological stress of thinking like a Western Marxist that causes so many to abandon Marxism. This is how the Cohen brothers go from mocking the hypocrisy of the professionals and the greed of the gangsters to mocking Marcuse. Hail Caesar is their version of Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. They tackle a version of Marcuse while Tarantino aims at Charles Manson, a much softer target. By the time they've gotten around to making Hail Caesar, it is clear that even Marcuse is just another version of Barton Fink to them, a professional playing at caring about the workers' movement. Is that fair? I have some differences with Marcuse. Unlike him, I am not a big fan of Heidegger, but I still don't think he deserves what he gets in that film. They make him out to be a soft tanky, a sucker for the Soviet Union. That's just not fair. It is a bit ridiculous even to try to criticize the opus of the Coens. Individually, many of these films are great, and the Coens' perspective is, to a large degree, representative of how most artists, perhaps even most Americans, feel about politics. Their view of the intelligentsia is not unearned. Many professionals and academics have written frivolous works in the name of causes they have failed to meaningfully define, much less advance. But if what they say about Barton Fink applies to Marcuse, is there any form of political intellectual to which it would not apply? Is the corpus, on the whole, too nihilistic? Will Helen answer these questions, or does she have other thoughts for us today? <laughs> well... It's interesting that you mentioned the whole range of um, the works by the Cohen brothers, which I do enjoy. Um, and I wanted to make a little side comment on actually my favourite Cohen brothers film, which is Burn After Reading, before I talk about Barton Fink, because my parents worked in a similar world to the characters in Burn After Reading. And I actually did it. I did an internship one summer at a British embassy. And it really feels like the most accurate documentary I have ever witnessed <laughs> of that kind of like, I don't know, uh, diplomacy kind of world. Um, absolutely hilarious. So in my experience, it's sort of from my, my brief experience in, as uh, doing, doing an internship, it was like 24 hours firefighting fuck ups. And it was, you know, uh, witnessing the inner worlds, the inner workings of, of politics and the relationship between nations. And I have some stories that, Probably I couldn't even say now because it'd be so shocking about uh, this time and what was happening in this country at the time and what's happening, quote unquote, behind the scenes. But, you know, it's very much it's, it's similar to the to the uh, Yellow Brick Road, Wizard of Oz, behind the curtain. There's just a bit of a dunce working machine. There's, there's nothing really there. So there's no there there. And I do like this idea of, as you say, Benjamin, maybe it's it's excessive in this, this nihilism, which doesn't even um, grasp its own nihilism. Um, however, one thing that I do really like is this idea of exposing the big other. There is no big other. And that film does it absolutely hilariously. There is a story, actually, my mum worked in um, uh, uh, sort of intelligence kind of centres for a long time. And this was early noughts. And uh, one day someone spilt sugar and they shut everything down because, they, of course, they thought it was anthrax. I'm sure this happened numerous times in these settings. And eventually, after they shut it all down and got people in with the big suits and stuff, somebody licks their finger, uh, you know, tests and it's like, mm, yeah, it's it's definitely cast to sugar. You know, so they, they, I really appreciate that film. Um, I think it's very, very humorous and it gets that world very, very well. And it's interesting because, you know, these, these films um, are in lots of different worlds and they are a couple of brothers whose oeuvre is, you know, it has a distinct sort of tonal quality, but it, um, unlike some uh, directors, you know, whose films are very similar or, um, you know, there are similar themes, but 
they're quite distinctive. And I do, I do think, you know, No, no Country with Poor Old Men is, is quite different from, from other films. And, you know, eternally things like True Grit are quite, not quite as, as, as funny as say, um, <laughs> burn off reading. Absolutely love it. Anyway. Um, so this film, I think, you know, one of those sort of like more basic kind of literary analysis films would, would analyze the sort of metatextual, uh, dimensions of the film. So, you know, it's a film about playwrights, a film about filmmaking. The opening of the play uh, of the film is a play, not only a play, but the playwright mouthing the, his own lines as the other actors enact those lines. So sort of like raising to the state, raising in relief, the sort of process of filmmaking. You know, there's a, a scene at the end where a woman who, um, he has been working with uh, in front of an image of a woman by a beach. And then he goes and, you know, in real life is sitting by a beach in Malibu and this woman appears and he, he asks the woman, are you in the movies? And she says, don't be silly. But of course she's in a movie, you know, but I actually think it's sort of doing something more um, formally interesting than just being like a comment on filmmaking, the structure itself. So it, you know, it, it does sort of go nowhere. And in a way, maybe we could say that it, similar similar quote unquote in a way to titan it's like and you know but i think that there is an and so it's sort of the point it's making is you know like with everything you know there's no there there and it's sort of exposing as you say benjamin like every single kind of um structural dimension of society or capitalism or like ways that we try to avoid capitalism it's it's exposing the contradictions and the sort of um impasses in all these different forms but in doing so it's not just sort of like throwing the baby out with the bath water or, or doing it in like a purely adolescent way i think it's it's more kind of like labyrinthine than that and it reminds me like the structure of this reminds me of like a klein bottle which is probably a bit like naff to say this is something that like um lacan talks about a lot because it's not just it's you know it's going nowhere i think in exposing that there's no there there, they ex they expose actually the substance of human subjectivity, so that there is something, there is there is something to work with. I think, um, you know, of course, in terms of you know going nowhere, there's a there's a line that's repeated about plumbing the depths and how his character, the serious earnest character, is plumbing the depths. But you know, there's no depths. There's one scene where um, after sleeping with the ghost writer. Um, for his fellow author, there's a scene where he's the, the camera kind of goes in a kind of Lynchian way, but you know it's sort of this sort of like faux Lynchian piss take almost. But I kind of like Lynch as well. So, but it's it, it, the camera's traveling down the plug, you know, and he's talking about plumbing the depths, and then you know it goes nowhere. There's lots of there's lots of going nowhere. There's you know there's an element where it's all about his sort of heady ideas, and then he's working with a lady's head cut off in a box on his desk. Um, you know, of course, we've talked about he's, he's, talk, he's obsessed with the common man, but, you know, his his neighbour who works in insurance, quote unquote, um, you know, he never asks about his work. He's very patronising and what have you. Um, and, you know, he has his own overblown sense of importance. For instance, he's, he's trying to work out the script and Basically, we see the first lines of the script and it's sort of, you know, about this tenement building in New York and he has like three lines of action and nothing happens. And actually, at a certain point, he's he's thinking he he sees it within the Bible, like a passage in the Bible, which is what he has already written. But it kind of it kind of really goes nowhere. There's, it's also a thriller with this constant impending sense of doom that there will be a big reveal. I mean, I personally maybe would. In my taste structure, something kind of differently to to like use the thriller genre more um, in a more potentially engaging way. But this, I think this is deliberate, you know, th this isn't just like a random piece of random, whatever it is saying something, which is, I think always this idea of the other of the big other, like there's, there is no, there is, we're constantly revolving around a lack and there is no um, absolute but not that, you, but within there being no absolute, as we talk about a lot with Lacanian ideas, it's not like everything is random, but actually the no absolute is precisely what generates everything. Um, I don't know, at the end of the film, I think it's quite interesting where we get this, this is a genre trope of like, oh, you know, he has suddenly, he's capable of, um, of writing um, 
the, I, I can't, there is a moment in the screenplay which sort of is like the quote unquote inciting incident for him writing, but it's so like random that it, I, I think it kind of is like deliberately random as in it's, it's, there's no like reason for it per se, other than potentially has the fetish of the lady's cut off head next to him. I don't know, but he, he's suddenly able to, to write. And in a traditional Hollywood film, it would be like, wow, he saved the day. He has all these insights. And suddenly he was struggling, but he manages to write the great movie of the common man. And he goes to his um, Hollywood overseer and they're like, yeah, you're amazing. But, you know, it just ends up being a pile of shit. <laughs> it's a complete flop. So um, I, I think it is, it's more than just a random, so, you know, I'm not particularly into the surreal and I think it's more than a random surrealist piece but i think it is like lacan's klein bottle a um like an mc escher sort of um revo- revolution around lack that kind of gets us to confront the randomness and contingency of our existence but you know i i don't think this is like in there per se but we can maybe intimate from that that as with the, the Wizard of Oz, there is no big other. And precisely because there is no big other, you know, we have, you know, we are more free agents and we we can maybe um, intimate that this idea that from the other of the big other, from, from lack itself is where everything emerges. All right, let's hear what Nina thinks. Yeah, I I never really know what to make of the Cohen brothers, and rewatching this film was uh, no exception to that. And I agree with a lot of both of what you've said. Particularly, I think the idea of a kind of soft nihilism, um, but also this kind of no there there. And I mean, perhaps Helen finds that more interesting <laughs> than I do because I, I think one of the things that really reminds me of this film, and and I did watch it more or less when it came out because. Uh, not only was I born, I was also old enough to watch films at this point, <laughs> unlike Benjamin. So, um, or Helen, for that matter. So, so I did watch this film in the 90s, probably not exactly in 91, but probably more about 94, 95. I remember watching it at someone's house. Um, and it's not like I particularly remembered it, but I did remember the sort of affect of it, which is obviously in a way what they excel at. You know, these are very good films, right? There's extraordinary style, extraordinary attention to detail, the the intensity that's summoned from a scene of wallpaper peeling off the wall or a or a fly or a mosquito imaginary flying around. You know, these are these are great scenes, right? They're fantastic filmmakers. I think I think what I I don't like about the Cohen brothers and this would probably go for all of their films to a greater or lesser degree, is this uh, what it would is, I don't know, manifestly obvious to me, this kind of postmodern pastiche and this irony, which you also get in Tarantino, the rewriting of history, because it's almost like at the end of history, there's nothing else to do. It's like cinema has swallowed theatre, you know, all of the aspirations of the, 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 um, the playwrights who are kind of mocked in the... Uh, Barton Fink character, one mocks, you could say, well, are they are they kind of um, recognised? Are they trying to reclaim them? All of these kind of, um, let's say, politically motivated, you know, perhaps hypocritically, embarrassingly uh, earnest socialist playwrights of the 1930s who are kind of swallowed up in real life by the Hollywood system including you know the novelists and 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 all of these characters are like clearly pastiches of really existing writers and playwrights like Odette's or the no no one has ever heard of right you only hear, hear about Odette's because he's the basis for part of Barton Fink's character right or you know I mean obviously Faulkner is more famous but they kind of misrepresent Faulkner too if indeed that, that character is supposed to be for you know so they do this kind of I don't know it's like a sort of uh knitting together of really existing historical figures with really existing historical pressures like the committee for un-american activities like the the really existing persecution or you know even prosecution of um playwrights and and people in hollywood often jewish people who were suspected of you know soviet sympathies or or communist beliefs um and they kind of mash it up into what is 
something like a combination of a celebration of cinema in its capacity to retell stories. And Tarantino, of course, does this with Hollywood and he rewrites, Tarantino rewrites the Manson story, obviously, and changes the ending um, compared to what horribly happens in real life. So on the one hand, they're saying that cinema is capable of sort of doing that, like, you know, retelling new history, albeit in a mangled form or a, or a transformed form, and that's part of its power. But there's also something kind of um, disheartening about that recognition, I think, that cinema is the medium of the end of history somehow, and that all people like the Coen brothers and Tarantino can do is reference the history, not only of the thing that cinema crushed, i.e. the earnest young playwrights, let's say, that all got swallowed up by Hollywood, but also other films. So obviously there's a million references to other films in this film and, and you know, everything is this kind of, you know, uh, hall of mirrors. It's like the whole of cinema is a series of references to itself and to scenes in other films, at least if you, according to, to this film. Right. Like that's that's the kind of stylistic um, gesture that's performed over and over again. And, and, and lots of their films are indeed very similar. Like I was struck rewatching this um, by how similar even the order of the scenes is to something like The Big Lebowski, like where they go to the poolside and he, you know, someone shouts at someone. And, you know, I, I you could probably map all of their films deliberately. And of course, they're incredibly clever, incredibly thoughtful brilliant filmmakers right so it's not like they don't know what they're doing they in a way they know all too well what they're doing <laughs> and this is maybe part of the the issue because it, in a sense it, it, it they're, they're very hermetic they're hermetically sealed halls of mirror hills of mirrors in in the sense that they are cinema i think doubly referencing cinema's capacity to have consumed all of the previous media and still only be able to talk about itself somehow. And, and that might be the height of genius. That might be the end of art in a certain wonderful way. But at the same time, I think just personally, I find it quite um, cold and alienating. And I didn't like this pastiche, this postmodern ironic position when I was a teenager. It was very, it was absolutely everywhere. Um, I mean, there might be some... Re good reasons why the end of history looked like this, right? Of course there were. Um, but I think it's one thing to, to notice it and another thing to almost kind of celebrate it, I suppose. And that there isn't enough of the, I don't know, another world presented by these films, even though I do agree with Helen that at the same time, they are pointing psychoanalytically to a very interesting um point which is in a way the absence of the the other of the other like everybody is simply like this node <laughs> um desperately sort of seeking affirmation for the lack that they they feel um whether it's from their fellow man or fellow woman or imaginary groups like the working class or so on and so forth or the audience let's say and who is the audience um so it's very clever but i think ultimately uh too clever. <laughs> I mean, it, it's true because surrealism is like a different thing. And surrealism is something that I've always found quite difficult to get my head around. Well, I don't know if it is to get my head around, but maybe it's just something that personally I don't, you know. But do you think these films are surreal? I don't think no, I, I don't know if they're surreal, but I think that oh. there is some element that's similar in terms of the ethos of the surreal with the postmodern. Um, because I, I, I mean, for me personally, like I do like um, certain sort of like maybe this makes me a metamodernist. Who knows? But like a certain like <laughs> certain like um, um, elements of pastiche and and you know um, things being in relief. But then I also appreciate an earnestness, which is a reengagement with the world, because we actually have one life and we exist in community with other people. And when we have this insight of like, what do we do with it? But it is interesting because, you know, you talk about Tarantino and obviously um, Wes Anderson is another one. You know, if you look at that period of time where you have these directors coming up in the 90s through independent cinema in America and really the people who, you know, became in the noughties and 2010s that like, our era's canonical filmmakers, they do all have that, not all, but there is a, you know, and you have at the other extreme, someone who I appreciate and have come to appreciate more and more and more, uh, Terence Malick, who is from 
who's maybe, I don't know, like 20 years older than these people, at least 15, 10, 15. But, um, but yeah, that, that generation is, you know, Wes Anderson potentially has that more kind of earnest re-engagement, but it is like, it's an, it's an aesthetic that marks them all. It marks a lot of them. Yeah, I, I think if you take any of these films alone, and it's the only film of that type that you've seen, and you treat it as the only film of that type, by themselves as just critiques of particular masters that are full of it. I think any of these films works as an individual piece. I think the critique comes in when we bear in mind that all of the films from the Coen brothers are like this, and not just the Coen brothers, but a number of quite famous directors, all of them are taking the piss out of different faux master figures. And you have to, I think, a person who makes one film like this is potentially a genius. A person who only makes films like this and can't make any other kind of film, a generation of directors who only make films like this and can't make any other kind of film, that speaks to a problem. Mm. So I, I kind of want to say Helen is right and Helen's praise is right in reference to any specific film, mm -hmm. but that Nina's critique is right in reference to all of these films in their totality as a genre, as a group. I mean, I wonder what you both think about this, because Benjamin, quite rightly, I think, emphasised this idea of like soft nihilism being the kind of ultra nihilism ultimately in a certain way. But I wonder if what they're also depicting, and, and maybe this is a minor distinction or not a distinction at all, is, is actually sort of cynicism as well as nihilism or because because in a way that the one of the overriding messages of the, these films in general as we're talking about them is the fact that not only is everybody hypocritical and in fact the people who believe the most let's say in the working man or socialism or the efficacy of um, aesthetics as a form of political intervention these people are the most deluded right in all of these films or Marcuse is like a you know, a CIA agent or cynical age, you know, whatever. Everyone is, especially the people who are the most earnest are in a sense, the most deluded in these films, right? And so the implication is that um, we can only understand these people cynically, perhaps, you know, that, that their delusion is, I don't know, what enables them to be not only used by, let's say, Hollywood, but... Uh, we can laugh at them, right? The audience is invited to sort of laugh at the earnestness of the the young playwright in the 1930s or whatever. Um, I don't know how to put this, but are these nihilistic films about cynical people or are these cynical films about nihilistic <laughs> people? Or is this just a stupid question? I just wonder what the difference between cynicism and nihilism and also then the depiction of characters and the af and the effect that these films have on the audience, if you see what I mean. It's a bit convoluted. So this is where I do think that there is some shift in the oeuvre over time. Mm. I think a lot of the earlier Coen Brothers films are, are cynical and they're takedowns and they do have a little bit of a moralistic mm. approach. Fargo is beloved, I think, because it very clearly is a criticism of these people for valuing money. And I think Barton Fink goes after the playwright because he is unaware of the degree to which he has been morally compromised by his relationship to cinema. So I think that there is a, a straightforward moral critique in those films. But by the time we get later into the oeuvre, once they're more established, it becomes clear that this just becomes a formula that they use to critique everybody. Mm. And over the course of the Coen's work, everybody comes in for this critique, regardless of their position, regardless of what it is that they espouse. Every domain of life comes in for this critique. Similar kind of thing with South Park. South Park has been on television for 25, 30 years now. Everything comes in eventually for the critique to the point where it's just become itself a formula that is used by the directors to squeeze money out of the system. And so they eventually do the thing which they start off criticizing Barton Fink for doing, exactly. which is just mm. mechanistically making stuff which pleases the system and causes them to get paid and, and told that they're great. This reminds me, because obviously we're talking about maybe a generation. I don't know what generation. Are they early Gen Xers, these guys? Not to be so not to be, we always talk about generations. But it's interesting because this makes me think of, like, I quite like uh, um, 
uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, precisely because it's like a vision of the world. I don't really like, I'm not, I'm not a hippie appreciate um, I, I do obviously individual hippies I kind of like but then you know as a as a <laughs> political enterprise I am not for it because you know it becomes it becomes a new essentialism essentially and in a way you know what we see like politically I wonder if this sort of ethos has seeped in from from you know not that like politics is downstream from culture that's just like <laughs> so stupid but it's just interesting that like what does it say that you know this that this culture you know, it, this these cultural products are are Im- imbued with this dynamic, and then we're seeing this because I actually maybe to just to, to maybe like completely refute this idea of politics is downstream from culture because in a way, um, quote unquote politics is culture now. It's not that isn't politics. So when I'm saying that, like, actually we have a, a, a there's a similarity in this. Um, dynamic that we see in a form of quote unquote politics, which is really uh culture aestheticized with the aesthetics of politics today, which is the sort of like anarchic, destroy everything, nothing's anything, like blur all boundaries. I mean, obviously in the sexual revolution you have this idea of jouir sans entrave and you literally can't jouir sans entrave. Like it just doesn't logically, philosophically hold. Um, but it just it's just interesting that you you know this sort of p- twitter media figure perpetual undermining of anybody who has anything and even like this idea of cancellation right this like perpetual shift like nothing everybody is up for ultimate destruction and within the realm of like um i don't know like woke media quote unquote politics it's almost you know often the people who participate, as soon as you participate, you're likely at some stage to be on the wrong side of something at some stage. And I don't know, I just I just find this sort of like everything, like relativization of everything become, mm-hmm. becomes a new essence. And the essence is it's like, do you believe in nothing or do you believe in nothing? I mean, I think to believe in nothing is more uh, psychoanalytic than to believe in nothing, you know, but anyway. <laughs> so on the generational point. Yeah. I had to, of course, bring up the the birth years of everybody since Helen made the point. The Cohens are actually boomers. Yeah, they're older. I, the they're, Cohens were born in 54 and 57. Mm. Uh, Tarantino is an early Gen Xer born in 63. Uh, Wes Anderson was born in 69. So he's definitely Gen X. Definitely Gen X. And then uh, Trey Parker and Matt Stone, the South Park creators, 69 and 71. Yeah. So they're Gen X. No, it's interesting because I think I think what part of what Helen's describing now, now we discuss it is is almost like maybe this is a terrible thing to say, but we in the 90s, there's this like precisely in the South Park thing and in, in the irony pastiche thing. I think it. And and in comedy of that time, basically, like humor was equal opportunities, right? So there was this kind of great leveling. It's like everything was up for mockery. It was quite good in that sense, you know. Like it was sort of um, how to put it, it. It sort of was a light-hearted way of dealing with difference in a way that actually celebrated it paradoxically by saying everybody is sort of you know a bit silly sometimes you know let's all laugh at each other and ourselves and that this is a way of sort of coping with living at the end of history or whatever um that nothing but i think like so so but maybe rather perversely or paradoxically that sort of equal opportunities offense somehow morphed or couldn't hold and it sort of transmuted into this no some groups are off limits. The worst thing is to upset somebody else. The scrupulosity thing I started talking about last week. Um, and the, then the cancel culture and the punishment and and all of that. Like, if you make a mistake, then you must be stained forever. And, you know, which just seems paradoxic. Well, it seems opposed to the equal opportunities offence, like a reemergence of some kind of religiosity or whatever, as people talk about. Um, but I wonder, in fact, if it didn't sort of follow somehow that, that, that you know, that actually this kind of postmodern uh, sort of equality of nothing in the way Helen put it, like that, that nothing can't hold. Like you can't actually be postmodern forever because 
I don't know. It, it, there's not enough there, right? Like you can't just be ironic about everything. Some something earnest will 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 emerge from the deep, and people will say, "No, you can't be ironic about that." You know. Well, the '90s in the academy is the decade where the politics of difference and recognition was gaining a foothold. So as the 90s are becoming from a pop culture standpoint, the decade where everybody makes fun of everybody in the bosom of the universities is being nursed this this new uh, response to that. I think that part of the trouble is the end of history marks the end of kind of real economic contestation. So it forces contestation to be kicked somewhere else. And cultural discourse becomes the place where the contestation can is acceptable and can be contained. So it's because you won't have any kind of economic contestation that you'll have it in the cultural space. And uh, that equal opportunity offense, everybody is, is okay to be criticized is sacrificed so that the antagonism which would otherwise occur in the economy can occur in a safe place where it has no real effect on the structure. And I think we see that in large part in response to the turn in the late 90s, which was to a lot of quite economically critical stuff. There is in the late 90s some quite sharp economic critique that comes out of this culture war being toned down and comes out in films like Office Space. and I, I think you, you, we can even see that in some of the earlier Coen Brothers films like, like Barton Fink and Fargo. There's some class discussion going on in those films. And I, that has to be killed. And that's killed through reigniting a cultural antagonism that will then speak over it, uh, aided and abetted, of course, by 9-11, which kicked cultural issues yeah. to the forefront. Very true. And it's interesting because, yeah, I mean, you, you said this yourself, but it's not only that it... Um, quote unquote politics enters the cultural space, but in entering the cultural space, it becomes something that isn't politics. It becomes this particularist, oppositional, some stuff operate like dynamics operating at the level of the imaginary rather than the level of the symbolic. So this undigested, like childish name calling rather than um anything that gives us purchase on the true dynamics of the economy. Of, sub, uh, of subjectivity, you know, that and, and and like a and a repressing of anything that points to that. So anything that is truly because the irony is what happens is stuff that we say is really political. Oh, I don't like it because it's too political. It precisely isn't political at all. It's like oppositional, which is preventing politics from happening. And then if you actually do politics in art, which basically political art is art. <laughs> Because it's basically foregrounding contradiction. So it's doing something that happens in, you know, the same, if you're doing politics, you're doing the the tarrying with contradiction. And that's what art does. So precisely when something is political in art, it's precisely apolitical in this. um, But actually that art itself is political. And if you do art itself, the the critique that kind of gets made, it's kind of funny because it'll be this sort of like, what, like, how do we deal with this? Because it's so people are so used to something that isn't art and is oppositional and seems political. And then it, it anyway, but, but people it's almost like it's so overwhelmingly confusing at this point. But it's very interesting. I hadn't quite thought about it before, but you know, linking your two comments, it's like in a way, the end the end of history is also like precisely the end of bipolarity, right? So like you, you know, of course it's it's the invention of the global. Uh, in an in a particular way, right? The global existed before, but but obviously the end of the Cold War is is the end of the external enemy as different, right? So then you have the collapse of differences. I think, yeah, precisely at the same time as you have this discourse of difference and recognition, which is sort of like partly watered down, Levinas uh, plus some gender stuff. I don't know. I, I don't know what's going on in the nineties. It's all a bit weird, but uh, and not good. Um, but I think because you have that lack of an external enemy or lack of external opposition and everything is the same, but this is how people did then differentiate themselves because there's a, there's something kind of horrible and uncanny about that kind of proximity. It's like, oh, well, we're all just global subjects now, aren't we? So, you know, w- whatever country you live in, I mean, obviously lots of countries aren't included in the global in the same way as you know, the West, Western countries are, right, if you see what I mean, right? There are still differences. There are still points of tension and points of protection of the commons and fights over resources. But let's say 
somehow on some level conceptually in a sort of post-Kantian way, we're, we're all global subjects, right? And this, and there's no external enemy, right? There's no aliens yet. Well, you know, although the 90s is the, also the period where everyone goes mad about aliens again in a very serious way, not only because of X-Files and rave and drugs and stuff, but aliens are a huge cultural phenomenon in the, in the 90s. And I wonder if it is actually an attempt to try to generate an other, actually, because everything is imploded into this proximity and homogeneity, which then maybe leads to this need for identity as a differentiating desire, like to say, no, 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 I'm different, I'm special, you know, even though everyone's the same. <laughs> if you don't think how they dealt with it, maybe we mentioned this before, um, how they dealt with it in Top Gun, the new Top Gun. I haven't, I haven't seen it. Oh, you have to see it. It's so good. Anyway. Well, maybe um, you'll pick it as one of the things. Yeah, well, I have a few do. things that I would like to pick. But anyway, but it's interesting how they deal with it because the the other is this, it's, it's, it's like it's pure difference. You know, it's like, it's like they're not named. They're just this this like the, the 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 we don't know what countries it's in we don't know who they are we don't know there's this, this baddies you know they're not they're not russian they're not anything they're not iranian and they don't they have like they're all in their fight to pilot thing so we don't even know who they are but they are they do reintroduce another mm. who the other is and it, it's not a wake film so you know um but um yeah, I, I think that's I think that's a really interesting point. I mean, I just had this thought, so shoot it down because it's probably shit. But um, interesting, you know, the idea of the cancellation of um, authors from the past, mm. in the name of them being white men, right, or having the wrong views according to today's standards. But of course, like there are material just as like in terms of identity politics, which I think it tries to grapple with, but sort of doesn't quite. It turns the contradiction, which is a true contradiction, which is historically, you know, in certain epochs, generally white people, generally enslaved people of colour. They transform that from a contingent material occurrence into an essential opposition that um, can then, um, can, uh, like a, a culture war can continue instead of tarrying with that past and dealing with it, can continue on to paper over, to act as a fetish for the exploitation that exists today. So that's to say that, yes, it's true that there were, um, within um, our societies, we have a pantheon composed of mainly white men. And that says something. That says something about the nature of the society that existed at the time. And that's an aside. But the point being is, why can't we understand that dynamic and take works for their work as art. And I mm. wonder whether it is precisely because of something being a work of art that it can't be tolerated rather than it actually being a question of identity. But the the identity is the cover story to suspend that potential space. I think part of the trouble is that art is always a little bit behind. You know, like, if we think about the art of the 90s, the art of the 90s very much reflects what was going on in the universities in the 80s, where a lot of academics are reacting to the crisis of the late 70s and early 80s, the crisis of confidence in institutions, the oil shocks, the sharp class conflict between labor and capital. And those are the things that are driving a lot of artistic narratives in the late 80s and into the 90s. And then you have the collapse of the Soviet Union and the collapse of the Soviet Union precipitates a rapid shift in what academics are talking about and how academics are thinking about these things. But it takes five to 10 years before that seeps into the mainstream artistic conversation, because mm. by, to, to get into the mainstream artistic conversation. You have to come up through the university system. You have to be exposed to whatever is the dominant discourse in the system. You then have to work your way into the film industry. You have to get to the point where you can make films that people actually see. And all of that takes a little bit. And so movies are always a little bit behind and they can get caught behind in ways that really expose the degree to which the particular nexus of political economy and culture that gave rise to them no longer applies. 
And so I think that recently, for instance, we're seeing films coming out that are still very much based around the conversation that was going on in the mid-10s. And they don't feel appropriate to the situation now, which is, again, a situation of stagflation, uh, of recession, of a cost of living problems, of serious material issues. And so the film industry feels out of step with fundamentally what's going on now. And I think that uh, in a similar kind of way, there was a little while into the 90s where the film industry was doing kind of films inspired by the late Cold War. And then that gives way. But isn't, yeah, I mean, I agree, I agree with that. But isn't there a kind of even sort of darker point that Helen's making, which is almost like this move towards like iconoclasm and this kind of hatred of arts? you know, for us, you know, I don't know how to put it, like a, a suspicion of art as such, right? And I, I think, I, I mean, I tried to write about this in relation to the statues, you know, when people were pulling down statues and speculating as to whether this was a kind of neo-iconoclasm, like this kind of maybe like a a sickness with, with so much imagery and the domination of the public space and with history itself and this kind of overwhelming feeling that there's just too much in a way and that actually a shortcut you know one shortcut is to say let's not read anything by dead white men okay all right that cuts out a lot of things that saves time <laughs> you can get back to watching your crappy netflix series if you don't have to read any of those people um but there's also a sense in which maybe there's this kind of you know, after the end of history, you have the end of art, which is or a disgust at the kind of, you know, the horror of, of history and art. And it's like, well, how do you deal with that? Well, one revolutionary solution is the kind of year zero approach, which is like, well, let's just destroy it all or, or make it out of bounds or say we can't read it or, you know, or that it's or that it's tainted by its own history. No, I have I to say know. that is quite it's quite an optimistic. <laughs> right, that we're just a few years out of sync because I think that that's really not. And it's true because sometimes you know you you pitch something say five years ago, and then suddenly something happens in culture, and you're like, damn, it would have been really good if I made a film about this right now. Um, for instance, I had a I have a film that I've been trying to make, or think not even I haven't made any attempts, but I've been thinking about about um, the new billionaire class, and actually things that happened with the Russia, Russia, Ukraine war and stuff. I was like, this would be such a good time for this to have been made. But like, of course, part of the reason why I didn't get to, because I was like, how the hell would I get this made over the last, because I don't think the ideas would be like speak to anybody in terms of like the financing and production and making things happen. But maybe now it would. And then by the time it's made, like, you know, but obviously there is this more ideological dimension to the culture industry, you know, and, Maybe if we take Benjamin's point that the the films that catch on, like you know, the, the people who are able to surf the wave, happen to be working on something that happens to coincide with like the ideological dimensions of the moment. I don't know. I don't know. I I think both are true potentially. Well, I think you see the ideological aspect in the way that two thousand eight was taken up, or rather, not taken up. So. 2008 is, of course, returned to economic issues as the thing that is driving most people's engagements with politics and clearly important. But there is a kind of attempt to suppress the movement by millennials in the early 10s back toward the economy, in part by kind of trying to shame millennials into returning to the cultural lens from prior to that period. And when the cultural lens returns in the mid-10s, it returns in a, in a kind of, of dogmatist, incredibly, incredibly stupid way that doesn't reflect the quality of the conversation in the 90s or the aughts. Now, insofar as we had these precursors in, interested in recognition or interested in groups uh, or multiculturalism, a lot of that literature in the 90s and 2000s was... Uh, I may disagree with it in various ways, but it was academic work. It was people trying to advance theories to explain things. In the, from the mid-10s on, it becomes increasingly an insistence that you must continue to participate in this thing. You must continue to think in these terms and use these frames, even though they no longer correspond with the problems real people are facing. And then the excuse of Donald Trump being used to perpetuate inflicting this particular narrative on everybody. 
extending the lifespan of a discourse which had had run its course in terms of its relation to anything real uh, far beyond it, what would have been its normal lifespan. And now we're coming into a period of, again, extreme economic pain. And again, an attempt to suppress a return in the academy and in the universities to discussing seriously economic issues, discussing seriously distribution of wealth and power questions. And so I think there is, in general, even if things were working well, there would be some level of gap just because of the time that it takes for people to work their way in, for people to make stuff, for people to sell stuff, for people to get stuff made. But on top of that, as uh, capital has tried to fully colonize and dominate the university system, that has made it more difficult for the university system to respond to events which occur. And then that makes it harder for that response to be transmitted to artists and to popular culture. So it, it causes popular culture to be unable to respond to the actual events that are affecting people's lives. And this produces uh, a pop culture, which is like a high culture in the sense that is, it is disconnected from the low culture. So because film is assumed to be a popular medium, it's assumed that if you make films, that those films will be popular. But if you uh, have a totally ideological approach to what kind of films you can make motivated by uh, capital's desire to impose a particular frame, then those films, even though they are nominally pop culture, become high culture and become things that most people don't go to see, don't go to watch. And then because of COVID, that can be blamed on COVID. COVID's the reason people don't go to see these films. Uh, COVID is the reason nobody's watching them. It's not because the film industry has become committed to a particular perspective that is now many, many years mm -hmm. out of favor and in its effort to stay in favor has become increasingly rigid and dogmatic and exclusive and stupid, very stupid. Well, it's and so easy to see through. It's interesting because, you know, of course, in the dance, we're in the attempt to paper over the contradiction. The contradiction precisely rises up and undermines the whole enterprise. So. This is why being ideological is a dangerous game. Because um, now, I don't know if I shared you, there was an interesting video essay done about um, precisely this question, the wakeification of Hollywood and the, the economic implications and what has been happening in the last six months. Um, it's very interesting. I'll share it with you guys if I haven't shared it yet. Interestingly, the, the filmmaker that I think speaks to the moment the most, but ironically, like, we never hear from, although he has made a few very good films in the last few years, is Ken Loach. And Ken Loach is someone who, whose works I didn't appreciate so much in earlier years, but was very elevated. Um, and recently, I mean, he he is a, a darling of the Cannes Film Festival, so generally his films get into Cannes because he's such a canonical figure. But it, it, interestingly, I don't know if you saw um, Sorry We Missed You. I mean, that was an amazing film about... Um, essentially Amazon delivery worker. And obviously there is this element of like, you know, the, the, the old man who's neutered and, you know, whatever can, can have his little say or whatever. And, and, and we, we, we support it, but actually his, his films really speak to our situation, our situation, if you will. Yeah, I, I remember actually going to see in theaters in Britain, I, Daniel Blake, I, in Cambridge, to be fair. So I don't know how many people saw that in, mm. in broader cinema. Yes. He, he was born in 1936. He's 86 years old. Seriously? Oh. Yeah. I think, I think maybe there's a resistance to Loach um, and Mike Lee maybe is because they're, they're a little bit too proximate again in this kind of realism yeah. sense you know I mean these I remember going to see oh I don't know one Ken Loach film or something I can't remember which one it was and there was some sort of upper middle class Italian women sitting behind us and they were like like I don't know how to put it they they were sort of mocking the Englishness of the, the characters like they just found it hilarious and it was like a comedy it wasn't supposed to be a comedy but it was like they found it funny because these characters were so sort of yeah stereotypical or something like this you know yeah. and 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 i remember feeling like very minorly annoyed like you can't laugh at just go, uh, yeah, you know yeah. in a very silly way but i i do wonder if there's almost something too on the nose yeah too quotidian yeah. too proximate too close and I, but i haven't seen the amazon mm. one and, and you're right that that i mean it's an amazing thing that he's making films about that at to his, today i mean yeah, today and at his age, like this is quite impressive. 
I know. And they're very, they're very sharp and they're very well done. But the, you're right. Like, because, you know, in a way we talked about this a little bit with storytelling, the Ted Solon's film about like, mm-hmm. um, that telling the truth as well, I can't remember that I don't want to quit myself because that's really stupid, but I think I said something that I'm like, oh, that was actually a good point. You're about, like, you could do that. <laughs> should, I, should I look it up? Because there's a, there's a there's a thing that I think I said that I would like apply. So apologies, people. I mean, once anyone says anything, it's the property of humanity. And and Feuerbach says to think is to think from the standpoint of the human. You know, so there, there is no nothing belongs to you anyway, Helen. Exactly. Yeah. So this is true. It's all on my substack. So um, here we go. This is so I like this is embarrassing, but it's. Because I can't even remember what I was saying, but there is, um, yeah, no, see, so she, so, so Vi, remember the, the character with the mm-hmm. some character who's t- saying about something that actually happened to her, some like abusive situation with her professor. And she's, she's made, she's, she's, she's saying it as the truth. And it, it's really aggravating to everybody. And everyone's like, oh, no. And, but there is evidence in the film because there are photographs of all the other characters in her class having been in this sort of abusive position. And so um, so they are outraged precisely because they know she is telling the truth and she has put that truth in the wrong register, the truth. Mm-hmm. You know, so maybe that's like part of the thing with, um, <laughs> and this is why I think film is so good as an unconsciousness raising medium. And sometimes, you know, it's not about like, sometimes, you know, the most annoying sort of art housey films are the least political or the least the least um leaning into the power of film um and sometimes actually you know the wizard of oz or <laughs> taking things like really out of the ordinary can get us closer to the ordinary but yeah so i think that there is something about things being in the wrong register but i i think ken Loach is amazing in his most recent films one of the things i want to point out here is that as we have failed to maintain any kind of pipeline from the generation that was last able to make that kind of stuff. Uh, what we have done is we've kept around whoever has survived from that generation. and we, we don't let them retire. No. Because we don't have anyone really to replace them with. Uh, you know, quite literally, you know, Studio Ghibli in Japan, uh, you know, Miyazaki's studio, Miyazaki was meant to have made his last film in 2011. But has been kind of forced to come back because without him, they don't know how to make anything that actually resonates with people. They attempted to make a film that was a computer animated film that was absolutely horrific and and disgusting uh, that nobody liked and which received incredibly negative reviews. And in response to this, they have to go get Miyazaki who who had intended to be retired more than 10 years ago and have him make another film to renew the brand so that it can potentially go forward. And this in, is in like some you're, ways, a, you're a sumo wrestler as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Having to keep somebody around and keep somebody doing something because we're not able to replace them. We don't have it. We, mm. Our pipelines have broken down. Our, our ways of replacing this lost knowledge have frayed. You know, my, my brother, there's a, an old man that they have to hire as a consultant because they don't at his company have all of the internal knowledge. Of, of what they're doing. And so they have to call up this old man and he charges hundreds of dollars for every hour that they talk to him on the phone. And he always tells them at the end of the call, feel free to call me again with any other questions you might have. Uh, sometimes we lose the ability to carry certain things on, but the society needs the, the, these people or, or this capacity in some way. And so it has to continue. Part of how it pretends that it still is functional is by keeping these people from the past around to do the things it can no longer do for itself. But it can I, no longer make people like this. So it relies on the previous yeah. society's capacity to make these people. Well, the solid melts into air and yeah, the, the, the financialization of everything like undermines everything that's solid within hmm. each of the things. Yeah. And that's how we get these, these ancient people that we can't let go of because they're national treasures, national treasures that we can't replace because we're so vulgar and, and so incapable of making anything of value. Anyway, that's my quasi-Adorno critique to end the episode. Thank you guys so much for listening. We're going to go do the B-side on Patreon. Have a wonderful rest of the day. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.